Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm in Miami today. It's a beautiful sunny day. It's a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I'm with David Jay, who's a good friend of mine and also an award-winning photographer. Um, his work's been everywhere, from the uh, Library of Congress to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Rio. But I know David from, I think, almost 10 years ago, I think, when we first met in Bondi. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Hanging out on uh, Hall Street, as I recall. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, we, we were both kind of these miscreants that hung out in the same cafe when every, every normal person was at work. Exactly right, yeah. Two of the many people not working in Bondi. <laughs> or at least not working on the surface. I think that was in some way the charm of that, that suburb, because it seemed to be constantly full of people that had a totally different time scale to everybody else. Yes, which is a, which is a beautiful thing. And I think uh, almost anyone in the world would enjoy that life, yeah. I, I, I remember I was really fascinated to meet you at the time because uh, I was going through a transition in, in my career. I was, I mean, photography now for me is a, is a wonderful hobby, but at, at that stage I was entertaining notions of being a photographer uh, until I saw what real photographers, the, the pictures they were taking. <laughs> so I think once I saw your pictures, I think I pretty much gave up on the idea of doing it myself. Is that true? Yes. That's the first I've I didn't ever heard of that. that. Yeah, I was... I didn't mean to, like, ruin your career. No, I think I like, just realized the difference between a being a talented, a talented amateur and someone who could actually... Well, I think what I realized was, was that it wasn't just about being able to take a, a good picture. It was about creating a powerful story. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that as the very first thing because, and it's so nice to hear that, but for the wrong reason, I, uh, I've struggled massively with my photography. And in fact, I've basically hated my own work since the day I started. I never really came to terms with the quality of my work. Um, regardless of what everyone else saw in it. Really? And uh, yeah, I had I'd basically started just kind of as a street photographer growing up as a kid in Oakland, California. Ended up living in Bondi there in Australia and, uh, you know, spending 20 or 25 years of my life over there. And uh, But my street photography ended up taking a very circuitous route and ending up as a fashion photographer working in London, Milan, Paris, Sydney... New York, all over the place, and which was amazing. And uh, on the surface, it appeared that I was a very successful photographer, which I suppose I, I was. And I was working for many amazing magazines and taking beautiful fashion pictures and beautiful beauty pictures. The problem was that I hated taking them. Even at the time? Even at the time. I was yeah. so overcome by my feeling of incompetence and my, my own insecurity was so uh, extreme about the work that it didn't matter who I was working for or the how good the pictures were. And they were apparently good enough to be out there in a very You're major way. You're being very modest. They were, they were fantastic. And I, I, I remember... Uh, we spoke about this many years ago, but because um, you trained in Italy, I think you, you spent quite a bit of time with in Milan. Yeah. And, and, and um, that style was, you know, that, that sort of Vogue Italia, you know, very like deep, saturated colors. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I I went through many many paths, you know, along my uh, my trajectory as a photographer, um, and I had a very strong style from the very beginning. 
it, there was nothing unusual about it, at least certainly not from my perspective, but at least it was enough to give my work a signature. Yeah. And, um, and therefore, a, and a signature that happened to fit in during the current time of fashion. And uh, as I said, the problem with, with it was just my own acceptance of my work. No matter where the pictures were being shown, no matter what magazines, no matter how much I was getting paid, I never felt that they were worthy of the attention that they were getting. How much was that was a sort of an artistic, self-critical, you know, judgment of yourself versus not being happy with the portrayal of beauty and the idea of a fashion photograph as, as, a, as a worthy goal in itself? Oh, no, this is pure insecurity. This has <laughs> nothing to do. It wasn't political. <laughs> this is not, nothing political, and it is and nothing as high-reaching as that. That was not my issue. I just questioned whether my work was good enough to be in the places that it was being shown. Yeah. And I never came to terms with that over the course of 20 or 25 years of shooting it every day all over the world. I struggled with it for in literally every shoot. I would be standing there in the middle of a shoot with my camera and a whole crew and models and the art director and everyone else. But the only thing that can go through my head is I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I could hand my camera to the cleaning lady and she could take a better picture. And I just, I never got past that feeling. And each time that the shoot would end and the pictures would come back from the lab, because this is way all pre-digital. This, this is before screens, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, this is, uh, this is all before digital. And uh, I'd start, I'd go to the lab, all these 24-hour labs in London we were just talking about, or Paris or wherever, and get out my loop and start looking at these things on the light table, and I'd be like, oh, thank God, there's a good one. I got lucky again. And every time, it'd be, I just got lucky again, just shoot after shoot after shoot. Yeah. But the struggle, really hurt me like it really hurt me I hated doing it and um, eventually there came a, a time that um, I just thought I, I just have to stop this is of course 20 25 years later and uh, so I, I managed to, to hold on for a long time doing it but there, uh, there came a time where just the quality of life regardless of how successful I appeared on the surface or what people said about the pictures I just couldn't accept them and and doing doing the work I just found so difficult you know not physically but kind of battling my own my own insecurity about the work <laughs> was very challenging yeah. so how, how did you make the transition to what you're doing now and uh, you know for those listeners uh, who aren't familiar with David Jay's work um, you know you the unknown soldier the scar project you've documented uh, war veterans um, amputee um, people who've suffered from breast cancer. So, I mean, this is a sort of a radical reimagining of the image. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's, also, there's also a grief camp, the Alabama Project, yeah. Naked Ladies, which is nudes of women in their 80s and 90s. Um, I mean, you're, you're actually presenting people who would probably be on the other end of the scale of what would be considered beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. This is this work I'm doing now is absolutely the antithesis of fashion and everything that the world stands for now. And it wasn't my intention to shoot it. This is something that this uh, kind of cataclysmic, uh, um, you know, um, cannonball of events happened and uh, kind of shifted the course of my career before I had a chance to, to do anything about it, really. So do tell. Well, 
Let me just take a sip of coffee here before I... <laughs> so this actually goes back to the time when, when I met you, although you know nothing of this story. Yeah. Um, this is when I was living in Bondi. And as you know, I lived on this, literally right on the water on Bondi Beach, and I had the most beautiful view, and I had been there for probably, I don't know, 20, 20 years there. It was a beautiful yeah. old apartment. I remember it. It, yeah. had, it had that basement with amazing, almost like a Moroccan yes. light. Yes, where, where many of many shoots have been done <laughs> in this basement. Yeah, and um, there came a time there where I finally just thought, you know what? I just have to stop my photography. It is just bringing me unhappiness. The money, the notoriety is irrelevant at this point. I just have to stop, and I did. I just thought that's it. I'm done with photography, and. I spent my days going to yoga and hanging out and swimming and seeing my friends and I was the happiest. Once I gave it up, I was the happiest I had ever been in my life. It was like this massive, massive weight had been lifted off my shoulders. It was just the most incredible feeling. I thought, oh my gosh, I should have done this, you know, 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, so I was just in full-on enjoyment mode and that went on for, I don't know, six months or a year or something. And then, one, one fateful night, I was, uh, you know, I, had, uh, I was there at North Bondi Italian with some of our other friends one night <laughs> having dinner. I went home to my, uh, my beautiful apartment on the water. And uh, all was well, you know, I went to bed and uh, I slept right in the, in the living room actually because I just could never get close enough to the ocean and that's about as close as I could get with the waves literally crashing against the, the walls. And um, I woke up in the middle of the night and I just felt like I had had a, a bad dream, like a really bad dream. And it was just a very uncomfortable feeling. You know that feeling you have and you wake up and you're just like, wow, got to shake that off. But the feeling just wouldn't go away and I couldn't quite remember what the dream was. I thought, all right, I got to get up and make myself a cup of tea because that's what you do there. And uh, it was probably two or three in the morning like that. And I got out of bed and I thought, oh, I'll look out the window and just kind of cleanse my head. And uh, I walk up to the window to look out on my beautiful ocean. But in fact, the ocean is no longer there. It has been replaced with an eternal, desolate, burning, lifeless, <coughs> barren, once again, eternal emptiness. Fire or just, or just nothingness? Like a, a desert, a burning desert that went on eternally. And literally the feeling of eternity, of this right. lifeless, barren, empty, um, you know, desert. And uh, along with that, came this incredible pain, the pain that, a pain so severe in my soul that I thought, if this doesn't go, into, go away, I'm going to have to kill myself, literally. This vision lasted maybe 30 seconds, but even at, and the vision dissipated back into my beautiful Bondi ocean, unfortunately, that vision had been so strong, it was as if my brain had been branded. And although 
you can take away the the vision. I couldn't take away the feeling that had taken over. Right. And this feeling of just unbearable pain. I mean, just unbearable pain. And I just thought, I'm going to have to kill myself. This surely, I'm having a dream, and I will wake up. But I didn't, and I. It soon became very clear that I was wide awake, unfortunately, and I wasn't magically going to wake up. That what had happened had just happened, and it was the most unbearable situation. And I somehow made it through the night, but this feeling would not, would not pass, and my days just became one of kind of. Trying to get through each day without, without killing myself. It was that painful, hmm. and of course I would tell no one in Bondi, because what would I say? I'm, <laughs> I've just had this vision, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to kill myself now. I'm sorry. See, it's been lovely meeting you all, and uh, so I didn't really tell anyone. I was very embarrassed actually about all of this, and um, as days one day rolled into another, it became more and more obvious that I could not get past this thing that this had been branded so deeply in my brain it was a transformative moment it was I would say it was pretty transformative yeah, yeah. it was going to yeah, transform me from living to dead and uh, I actually started cleaning out everything in my apartment so that uh, you know my family or friends wouldn't have to do it and I just the whole time I was saying this is so unbelievable and terrible how could this possibly be happening to me I'm having such a beautiful life not now and uh, you know um it was pretty brutal and uh, just about this time another series of events happened a very dear friend of mine Paulina uh, rocks up to my door and she's hysterical crying and she has just been diagnosed with breast cancer and she's I think 29 then excuse me while I take a sip of this coffee So I said, Paulina, you can't have breast cancer. Like 29 years old. And uh, she's like, David, it's, I actually do. And within about two weeks, they had done a mastectomy and uh, just removed her, her breasts, which was quite devastating for everyone involved, especially her. Especially at that age. Especially at that age. I didn't, have, I didn't even know you could get breast cancer from my perspective. I think like everyone else's, you just kind of think it's your grandmother's disease or your mom's or someone but certainly not a very vital you know young woman and with Paulina she had been a model previously and I had been taking her picture probably since she was 16 so I had an entire lifetime of pictures of Paulina and uh, needless to say I didn't tell her of my own story I thought oh this she's got enough problems on uh, on her plate and um, yeah within a couple of weeks she had her a mastectomy and had her breasts removed and uh, I just thought, I need to take her picture just to kind of document this place where, we're, where we both arrived on some level. And I really thought it would be the last picture I would ever take because I just didn't think I'd be able to get through too many more days at that point. Yeah. So I told Paulina what I wanted to do. And she's like, oh, of course you do. So I'm like, yeah, of course I do. So we, I dragged her into a studio in Sydney and just took a picture of her in her uh, you know, pair of jeans and no shirt with these big scars across her chest. And uh, I really didn't think anything of it, except, as I said, kind of documenting, the, documenting this moment. Um, 
Paulina said to me, she's like, you know, this has been a really interesting experience doing these pictures and perhaps you'd be interested in like shooting some of these other young women that I've met during, you know, since I've been diagnosed. Right. So you'd met other people in the same situation as Yes, well. exactly right. That these kind of women in their 20s that have breast cancer and they're going through mastectomies and chemotherapy. And um, she's like, I think you might find it very interesting to photograph them. And I think they would get something from it as well. Right. And I just thought, oh, if you only knew. Unfortunately, I won't be here to take those pictures. <laughs> I wish I could because it sounds very interesting. Anyway, I uh, went back home and um, I had only told one person about what had happened, about this vision and really what was happening to me. And uh, she was in New York and she's like, listen, wait for the plane to pass. She said, I'm going to come to Australia and just make sure you don't do anything crazy. And... I really didn't want anyone to come because I just thought, oh, this is just, I need to be alone and, and deal with this however I, I do. But she was a bit of an angel and, uh, you know, and came to Australia. And when I told her, I showed her the picture of Paulina and told her about what Paulina has suggested. I, uh, she's like, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Just take one more picture. Just one more picture. And I'm like, all right, one more picture. So I did another one of these young women with uh, no shirt on and breast cut off. And then another one, and then another one, and then another one. And every time was just unbearable on, on so many levels. Just I've seen some of these images. You weren't trying to glamorize them. No, that's, this is the thing, too, that's really, really important. Uh, and nor were you trying to shock. It was just no. documentation. Yeah, and they're very... The pictures, for anyone who hasn't seen The Scar Project, which is probably almost anyone, but uh, they're very raw and um, very confronting. They're not... I set out just to take honest pictures, not pretty pictures. No. Just very very honest pictures so you could look at them and see exactly who they were not who they wanted to be or who I could turn them into as a fashion photographer but just to capture a piece of their soul and just just so we could kind of examine their 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 life and 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 feel what they might be feeling hmm. um, and yeah this process went on for a couple of months in New York and although I didn't really, um, I'm sorry, in Australia, I don't know if I just said New York, but I ended up preceding this. This is just a bit of going backwards. I had just, prior to this happening, gotten a studio in New York, and I was kind of bouncing back and forth, and, uh, which, was, which made the whole thing even more unfortunate because I thought, oh my God, this cannot be happening. I've just got the most amazing studio in New York and now I have to kill myself in Australia. <laughs> I don't, it's actually not funny. It certainly wasn't funny then. It was terrible. Um, so a few months went by, me taking these pictures, just one more, one more picture, one more picture, and it would seem like it was the only thing that's carrying me from one day to the next. And I was building up this series of these women that were really is quite powerful, to put it mildly. And uh, about that time, my friends, she said, listen, I have to go back to New York. And she said, you better come with me. 
<laughs> and uh, I thought, yeah, I better. So I went back to New York, and um, I put a. Uh, I remember putting a little notice on Facebook, just saying, "Hey, I'm a photographer in New York, fashion photographer. I've just started doing this project. These are what the pictures look like. If anyone out there is interested in a, in a similar situation, give me a shout." I didn't really know if anyone. First of all, I didn't know if anyone would even want to look at the pictures, let alone take part in them. Um, but I was really beautifully surprised um, by the response. And that response came from all over the world with like literally starting thousands of really? responses. And uh, I mean, curiously, this was about the time that um, global awareness of young women with breast cancer was starting to come to the fore. Well, actually, there hadn't been any yet. And then yeah. when, I, when I first realized that if I, if I could possibly keep myself alive, that I would continue shooting this, I had better see and make sure that no one else had done it. Because if somebody else has already done it, there's really no point. If someone's done it well, there's no point in, in this thing. And uh, so I, you know, I Googled the hell out of it. And I, because it seemed like the most obvious thing to take these pictures, just the most obvious. Yet, I could find nothing, no. nothing like this. I, there was pretty pictures and there was this kind of pictures and you know, celebrity picture from back in the day, but nothing like relevant to this moment in history. And certainly no pictures of what it actually looks like on a human being that isn't some medical photo. Um, and certainly nothing on a young woman, you know? And uh, I thought, all right, at least that gives me a little, a little room to maneuver. So I felt better about putting this project out there. And, 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 and about the same time, did you also start the project with the, with the war veterans? No, I was still dealing with my day-to-day -day existence, let alone thinking <laughs> about another project. Are you kidding? This went on for years, by the way. This didn't, it didn't magically go away. I mean, there wasn't a, a day that went by that I didn't like wish that I'd get hit by a bus and take that image out of my head. I didn't sleep, I didn't eat, I was a total mess, except for taking the pictures. For some reason, I could always do that, and my interaction with the subjects was always amazing and beautiful, and I think had a, yeah, I think we were keeping each other alive in, in many, many ways, and it's really that, that process is kind of what got me through there. Yeah, we were just all in this thing together, and these girls would come from all over the United States and parts of the world and kind of make this pilgrimage to the studio in New York. And uh, yeah, I would take these pictures and I would tell them, listen, these aren't going to be pretty pictures. These are going to be honest pictures. And they had a great deal of trust in this, in the, in the images and the process that we were, you know, that we were doing and, and the vision I had in my head. Not, not the bad vision, but the good vision. <laughs> the good vision. And uh, it took about five years to get to the first exhibition, in which time I produced a book. And it opened up in New York, and it was amazing. It just, I'm not saying the exhibition was amazing, although it, was, it really was. If I, I can take myself out of that easily. You, now, you, now you know how much I hate my work. So for me to say it was an amazing thing, it really was. It was just so beautiful that it existed and that it all came together. And uh, it really just caused this kind of global um, focus on, on the work. And I started just getting 
once again, just thousands of emails from all over the world, from people not with cancer, mm. people who just felt disenfranchised, people who felt that they were always, uh, people who hated the way they looked, people who were scarred emotionally, um, physically, in a thousand different ways, people were able to relate to these images. And they would look at these pictures and think, that's me. And there's something beautiful there. And if, and if I see beauty in these images, then maybe I'm beautiful too, right? And I think it brought a great, and this is something that never occurred to me, of course. Because it was more than just beauty, it was about resilience, wasn't it? it it's about so many things, just the, I don't, when I say beauty, I don't mean physical beauty, because I, the pictures are not beautiful. No. I mean, not on their surface anyway, but everyone who looks at them falls in love with them. They fall in love with the subjects, and they're like, oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. But in fact, they're disturbed. They're very challenging to look at and very uh, confronting. Oh, but oh, the Yeah, because uh, they, they kind of challenge the way we look at pictures. Yeah, and the way we look at each other and the way that we look at ourselves. I think yeah. we're so fixated on our ex on our external beauty, which you can, or rather just our external, um, you know, on our external appearance. Thank you for helping with that. Um, our external appearance, and you just this self-obsessed kind of mentality now. Um, you know, this selfie-obsessed world. It's which I find quite revolting. And uh, it is extraordinary. We've probably never, as a as a civilization, taken more images and representations of ourselves and each other, and yet shown so little. No, I, it's this complete facade and, and the most kind of absurd, you know, manifestation of our our own, I don't know, cry for attention. Yeah. It's they're basically just these people going, just please tell me I'm pretty. Just tell me I'm pretty. That's all. I don't. It doesn't matter if you think I'm intelligent or smart. Even <laughs> intelligent and smart. It's, it's their kind of digitally constructed version. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's. It, yes, yeah. it's not. There's nothing true about it. No. There's nothing true. We can sit here at the standard watching these girls spend the next 20 minutes trying to take the perfect selfie of themselves, which I can see sitting right here that it has nothing to do with her. I mean, it's not just the girls. No, I actually the guys. Uh, are of far course, or, or certainly, <laughs> or certainly is bad. But you know, I, I was I was recently in San Francisco and they had um, a, a really big Diane Arbus exhibition. Yes. And uh, and you know, she's produced some extraordinary work as well, which you know takes images of people that we would also consider not beautiful or on the fringes, but in a way that's very different to you, in the sense that when I looked at her images, I kind of felt that I was looking at a secret world that on the surface looked the same, but actually was deeply terrifying. Yes. Uh, so it, it actually made me feel deeply uncomfortable. Yes. And it, it actually felt like uh, stills from a horror film. Yeah. But when I look at your work, it's the subjects can be horrific on some level, but they there's a sense of a greater sense of humanity. Yes. In a weird way. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I think really that's what the pictures are trying to communicate this kind of a deep sense of humanity and and a way we engage each other let me just also say that this after the scar project which actually still goes on which i've continued to shoot over the past 10 years let's just pause okay yeah i've continued to shoot the scar project over the past 10 years because one of the things i wasn't uh, counting on was that the girls would start dying 
but of course, that's uh, actually what happened. Am I talking you out of? No, that's good. Out of all right, yeah, yeah. So one by one, a lot of these young women, um, their disease would progress, and uh, we'd stay in touch uh, over the years. And I would, the ones that uh, the ones that got better, we would just perhaps email. But the ones that where the disease was progressing, I would continue to photograph. I would go wherever they were, um, and keep taking this kind of kind of documenting their place in their life, all the way up until um, the very very end. Often in the last days of their life, when they look nothing like how they appeared as young women when I first met them, and um, it was it's quite a terrifying uh, trajectory emotionally and physically for them and for the people they love and it was it's been really interesting documenting that and um, at the exhibitions I'll often have the first picture and the last picture maybe taken three or five or seven years apart and it's added a whole nother uh, dimension to this to this thing and uh, this the scar project then turned into the unknown soldier which is a series of these and by the way these pictures are all when they're printed they're around five feet across and they're very large and very in your face almost human scale they're bigger than they're bigger than a person and when you're surrounded by them in a big white room it really is um it really is very thought-provoking um especially when the images from perhaps the unknown soldier which are a series of these young men coming back from afghanistan and uh Iraq, who were, there's, they've literally just been blown to pieces, no arms, no legs, melted faces, uh, and everything that goes along with that. And in this series, it's kind of not, uh, they're certainly not wearing their, um, their military best. They're really just in, they're completely exposed. They're just yeah. perhaps have a pair of shorts on. But, and, but, but in those images, there's a similar sense of that resilient pride. Yes. And, and, and innate humanity. Yes, exactly right. And there's a, there's a beauty in these. That's where I was kind of going with this. And I, I don't mean um, any kind of physical beauty, but it instills, I think, in the viewer something that transcends our fixation on external beauty and uh, makes you realize that there's so much more, so much, something much more beautiful beneath the surface of a human being and something that we can all relate to on every level. And it's so obvious and there's this just deep love that I think can come out of people. And we see how similar we all are. Anyone can, you just feel the pain and the, the hope and the hopelessness of the subjects and, and they're the people that love them. You feel it all just standing in front of them. And uh, it's been really beautiful. That's kind of why I said about these emails that have come from all over. They weren't people with cancer or veterans or people in living in poverty, like some of my other projects, the Alabama Project or Grief Camp, these kind of um, very uh, grief-stricken children. It appeals to just uh, the humanity in like the most basic humanitarian uh, emotions in, in a person. And yeah and kind of makes us think where do I fit into all this you know like how do, what part do I play in creating this or what am I doing here
<laughs> well, David, thank you very much for sharing your story. It was, it was really inspiring. Thanks and, for listening to all that. And uh, it was great to see you. Thank you for being on the show. A lovely thing is lovely seeing you as well. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.